my schedule was get up at 5.30 or 5, go to the gym, go to work for 7, work from 7 to 3, come back home, go to the to train from about 5 to 7, come home, watch film, study, go to bed, do it all over again 7 days a week. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Basketball Strong Podcast. I'm Tim DeFrancesco, former LA Lakers strength and conditioning coach and doctor of physical therapy, and I'm here with my co-host, Emmy-nominated writer and author, Phil White. This podcast is not just for basketball junkies. It's for anyone who loves to hear the human stories behind great people while learning the science behind preparing your body for the court and high performance. Today's guest is Tyler LeClerc. Before Tyler became a successful player development and skills coach and gym owner, he poured himself into becoming the best basketball player he could be. I can't wait for you to hear how he pivoted and turned his basketball playing days immediately into becoming a powerful entrepreneur and doing what he's doing now you can follow tyler at tjl training that's tjl training on instagram he's also the co-owner of mastery hoops that's also on instagram at mastery hoops let's get into the conversation tyler tell us about how you and the game collided early on and it kind of got woven into your your being and your passion and what you're doing now so I would say I started playing when I was second grade or something like that. I was just always a big athlete. Like my dad was a a physical therapist, so he was into all different sports. So that's obviously kind of how I got my first start. I was never a huge or very talented athlete growing up. Um, But then I started to really find a passion for basketball around eighth grade. And then that's when I really started to take it seriously. I would eighth grade summer going into freshman year all i cared about was trying to make the varsity team so i was hyper focused on that i was making a thousand shots every single day in the driveway by myself Um, so that's why i really started to build my work ethic just for in general sports business all that kind of stuff and then i got into high school i played varsity for three years Uh, i went to salem state for a year i played college basketball for a year um and then obviously i still to take it back a little bit, I started to focus solely on basketball during my high school career. So mm. I was playing football, I was playing other sports. I was like, you know, what? I just want to focus purely on basketball. I did the whole AAU thing. Um, like I said, I went to college for a year and I, I just wasn't feeling the school thing. I started training my junior year of high school. I started training one of the kids on my team, uh, close buddy of mine who lived down the street. I still train him to this day. Um, so I, I really started to fall in love with training people and helping people just because I loved working out so much. It's funny because sometimes I look back and I remember when I was sophomore, junior in high school, just working hard in my basement, doing ball handling drills, I was always like, if I can just work out for a living, I feel like I made it. Like, I feel like I'd be successful. Now looking back, that's pretty much what I do. Uh, but yeah, so I went to Salem State for a year, played basketball. I was like, you know what? Playing really isn't as fun for me. I just love the training part. I love helping people. So I was like, you know what? I, I could see into the future enough that I can make this a living and I could do this. Um, and I just decided that my time and my money is better spent not in school because I know I could get the knowledge that I needed from other people um, to know what I needed to know to build my business and things like that. So I just decided to leave college and then pursue my dream of just training full time from there going forward. Take us Good back for you. Yeah, that's fantastic. So take us back into a couple of things that you said there. First of all, just that gym rat work ethic that you developed, you know, going into those varsity tryouts and, you know, other than making the thousand shots a day in the driveway, which is, uh, you know, certainly admirable by itself. Were you in the gym every second that you could be as well? Oh yeah. I I was, I was doing three workouts a day in the summer from eighth grade all the way through. Um, 
just like a lot of kids, you know, but I wasn't working smart, which we'll talk about that a little later. But yeah, I mean, I was, I was doing a strength conditioning workout in the morning. I'd go home midday. I'd do a workout. I'd go back home and then I'd go either work out and, or do another basketball workout later in the day. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Um, so how did this, uh, this relationship with your friend that you still train this day kind of progress to him being like, man, can I come train with you or can you train me? And then how did others start to get in on the act, both from your club team and, uh, and the high school team? Yeah. So the kid that I started training was actually, he lived down the street from me. So he was a really talented freshman and I just saw that he had a lot of potential and I kind of wanted to guide him because I knew I made some mistakes early on that I was like, you know what, I can kind of help you. He really needed to gain weight in the weight room, um, gain muscle. So I was like, you know what, I'll start picking you up. I'll take you to the weight room. I was doing my own workout. So I was like, you know what, you can join me. And then that slowly transitioned to, you know what, I'll just work you out by yourself. And then that transitioned to whom hmm, maybe I can train other people. So then one day after my senior year, I was like, you know what, I want to start tr- charging people for this. So I just made a flyer. I went to a camp. I handed it out. I was charging like 10 bucks a person or 15 bucks a person. I ran my first workout and I was like, I felt guilty. I was like, wow, I'm making money off doing something that I really love to do. So I literally left with money and felt guilty. I was like, I can make money doing something that I enjoy to do. And it doesn't feel like work. That's a good feeling. That's that is that is the feeling you want when you're trying to put it together, what you're going to do in your career. Did you have you said earlier you saw the future in terms of your ability to make a career out of this? Did you have people that were in the space that you looked at as kind of people that were carrying the torch that you wanted to either learn from or that you you took from in terms of what they were doing and and what you wanted to be and then be beyond them? Yeah. So I, I think it was a, a lot of different things. Number one, social media was obviously a big help because I could see that other people around the world were doing what I wanted yeah. to do. So I already knew it was possible. Um, I was watching like YouTube videos of people who own like gyms doing strength and conditioning stuff, trainers like Drew Hanlon, Michael Lancaster that were already doing this full time. So I knew it was possible and I knew it was going to start to catch on and become more and more popular. Yeah. Um, and I, I just I just believed in my ability to work hard and get to that level. Like I knew, okay, even if not everyone can get to that level, I knew if I work hard enough, I do what I need to do. I can get to that level. So one of the things I did was I interned for Drew Hanlon when I was 19. Mm. So fresh out. Of, so I was, I was big on, let me just read, cause my thing in college was I have a business teacher who didn't own a business and has never really made any money. So I was like, why am I learning from someone that <laughs> doesn't actually do what they're teaching me? So I was like in basketball, if I want to get to where I want to get to, why don't I just go and learn from people that actually do what I want to do? So I was like, Drew Hanlon, perfect example. Let me try to go intern from him. And then that's why I reached out to you too, which we were talking about off air. Uh, I just wanted to go and ask you questions because you were doing what I wanted to do. So I was like, let me just go and learn from people that are actually doing what I want to do. That's the best way to do it. So I just started reaching out to a lot of people. And then that's how I started to build my knowledge connections and things like that. Yeah. And, and just in terms of trying to soak all that up, were there, what sacrifices did you make, for instance, when you took that internship with Drew? I mean, you did with Drew Hanlon. I mean, sometimes when you take an internship like that, you get paid no money. You've got to relocate yourself. You've got to dedicate yourself to being the first one in the door and, and mopping the floors and cleaning up at the end. Tell us about that. Yeah. So the internship was two weeks in the summer. It was in LA. So me being 19, I paid my whole way there. Um, well, to backtrack a little bit, he was doing an internship where you had to apply um, and then if you got picked, he would, you could, he would 
allow you to go out there. But I mm. did that. I didn't hear anything. So I just kept messaging him on Instagram, probably a little more than I should have. And then I was like, yo, like I'm 19. Like I've really looked up to you. Like I would really love to just get a chance to go out there. And he finally answered me. and was like, yeah, you can come out. So paid probably a couple thousand dollars of my own money at 19 years old that I saved up from working at a golf course for a couple months. And like you said, didn't get paid any money, was out there in the gym 12, 14 hours a day, um, just just to learn as much as I could. I did that at 19, then I went back at 20 uh, to do it again, again, just spending my own money, um, investing in myself and taking a risk that I knew I was going to get that return on the back end by gaining the knowledge, experience, relationships, things like that. Yeah, we had Drew on the show. What were some of the things that you took away in a more up close and personal experience of that internship that you feel like you, you kept with you along the way from Drew? I, I think just the way he really carried himself, the way he organized his business, the way he had other interns, the way, just the way he really treated people and talked to everybody. I think that was a big key for me. Like he's really good at communicating with his players and the relationships that he had. So I really kind of caught on to that early that that's extremely important if you want to be successful in this business. And then obviously just the small tactical, like, skills training stuff that I picked up along the way, but it was more just kind of the intangibles, how he communicated, how he ran his business and things like that. Yeah. Very cool. Um, was Chris Hipper there at that time as well? No, he was not, but I actually connected with him kind of the same way. Like when I was in high school, I did a clinic with Chris Hippa. And then when I was out of high school and college, he came back to run a clinic in my area. And I was like, Hey, is there any way that I can come and help you out? So I just came, helped for free. Um, he allowed me to run little segments of his clinic. And again, that was just another way for me to learn, build that relationship, get experience. So, Yeah. What, what did you like about Chris's approach at that time? Um, I think that he, it was a little different because when I interned with Drew, it was a lot of individual stuff. So with Chris, it was kind of getting to see how a larger clinic was run, being able to get 30 kids in the gym, how you organize it, how you structure it. Um, so I think that was a big thing just because it was a different environment that I was in at that point, I was still probably 1920. So everything was kind of new to me. So that was completely different than what I've seen before. Yeah. Very cool. Um, when you told your folks, Hey, I'm going to stop playing college ball. I'm going to drop out and here's my plan. What, what was their initial reaction and did that change over time? Yeah. So before we get into that, they're definitely extremely supportive of everything I'm doing now and have been from the jump. But obviously when I told them that, it was, it didn't go over well. So, um, it was a lot of back and forth, but I knew that I was going to stick to that decision no matter what. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's typical. Like I don't blame them. They wanted what was best for me, but it's especially the route that they took. It was very unnormal for someone to do that. Um, so yeah, it was just like, you don't know what you're and a lot of other people too, like people who my old high school coach, old AAU coaches, um, things like that would just would reach out and be like, Hey, you sure you want to do this? You're going to regret this. I had certain people that were like, you're never going to make it full time. You're never going to be able to make enough money to do this. Um, so I had a lot of people telling me I had old friends saying the kid doesn't know what he's doing. He's going to regret that. Like, it's not going to. So like there was a lot of people. It's normal, obviously, just because it was different than what the people that I knew did. So there was a lot of people just saying you're going to regret it. It's not smart. You're not going to be able to do this full time. You're going to always have to work a part time job. And I understood that that was part of it. But yeah, I mean, especially my parents, super supportive of everything I'm doing now. So that's good. But obviously, it definitely didn't go over well at first for the first couple of months. Yeah, that had to be tough, though, because you did pour your heart and soul into 
that process to get yourself to the point where you could play college ball and then had that for one year and and suddenly was it sudden or was this something over the from senior year of high school into college where it was like maybe this isn't the exact avenue for me how did you grapple with that during that period of time yeah so it was definitely um gradual over time so like as my senior year of high school i started to realize like people that were doing sort of what I wanted to do didn't go to college. Like I was seeing a lot of people that didn't go to college that were successful in different avenues. So it kind of came to my mind that, Hey, maybe I don't need to go. Maybe it's not necessary. And then I was like, you know what? I'll just go. Cause I want to play a year of college basketball. I want to at least try it, see how it goes. I'll try the school thing for a year. And then once I got there, once I played, once I realized how the school system was kind of run, I started to understand myself a little bit more. That's when I was like, you know what? I'd, I don't want to do that. So I knew I didn't want to play basketball anymore just because I enjoyed training more than playing. Um, So if I wasn't going to play, then there was really no purpose for me being at school in my mind. So I think it was November uh, during that school year where I just made the decision at the end of the year, I'm done. Um, If I wasn't playing basketball, I would have left after the first semester, but I obviously wanted to finish the season. Mm -hmm. So I just stayed the whole year. And then, but I made up my mind in November that after this year, I'm I'm done. I'm going to drop out. So what, what about when, you did you have somebody that was in your camp where you were standing strong and and you could feel this becoming what you needed to do stronger and stronger to that point but you said you had a lot of people in your corner that you respected and that had been mentors or people that had coached you along the way mm-hmm. saying no don't do it was there anybody that said no go get what your this is your vision go get it mm-hmm. besides yourself um it was pretty much just me i had one friend really close friend that I trained, started training that year, uh, Manny Payton. I've been training him ever since. And I started to get close with him and he was pr- like supportive, like, Hey, if this is what you want to do, like, let's do it. Um, and he was just obviously very supportive along the way. I've been training him since when I started dropping out and he helped me kind of get some more kids, build up my training thing. So he was probably the only one, but obviously like, I didn't know anyone like in my family or whatever that dropped out and ran a business. And so I didn't really have any guidance of how it was supposed to look, how it was going to go. But I it had that one person to kind of lean on that understood like, hey, this is what you want to do. Go ahead and do it. He was all for chasing his dream. So he supported me chasing mine. So that was definitely helpful. That's yeah. special when you have that at least one other person to kind of on those days when you're like start scratching your own head. Like, yeah. is this right? You know? Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned um, saving up money to go go see Drew, you know, working a certain job. Can you take us inside kind of the the hustle phase where it's like, all right, I, I see what the vision is here. You know, you kind of had that trial run um, coming out, but you know, after your senior year of high school, before the freshman year of college, where you started taking paying clients. But take us inside the, the grind and the hustle phase of, of those early couple of years, particularly. Yeah, so when I first left college, it was... May of 2018, right after when I got out, I started to work a job at a golf course full time. So I was working 40 hours a week. And then I was training at a gym in Westford, uh, Massachusetts, and I was training maybe five to 10 hours a week. I was training kids outside too, but I was working 40 hours a week. And then I was slowly trying to build up the training. And then I would start to really, I start, I saw the opportunity on social media. Hey, like this is easy, low hanging fruit. I want to get as much content as I can out there to hopefully bring me more clients. So I was working eight hours a day, training two to three hours a day, studying two to three hours every single day. So my schedule was get up at 530 or five, go to the gym, go to work for seven, work from seven to three, come back home, go to the 
to train from about five to seven, come home, watch film, study, go to bed, do it all over again, seven days a week. And then I was just taking all the money that I was making, saving it up because I knew the place that I'm in now, I have my own gym. And I knew that this was the long-term goal. Like I want to get my own gym. I want to go full-time. So I was doing the, the golf course and then training 20 hours a week, every day, seven days a week for about eight months. And then the golf course job stopped because it was seasonal, obviously around November. And that was, that was the real decision maker. Cause I was like, you know what? I'm not making that much money from training. I was making maybe $2,000 a month in prime seasons. And then now it was in season. So I was making, I made $900 in a month off training, which is obviously not enough (laughs) full time in December. And then I was like, I could go and get a, cause I also got my personal training certificate cause I kind of wanted to do the weight room stuff as well as the basketball. And then that was a point where I had to make a decision. I had an interview lined up to take a personal training job. And then I just decided I'm not going, I'm just going to go full time with the basketball thing. I'm going to give myself no other option to succeed. So I spent December, January, just studying literally probably 10 hours a day. I'd watch 10 different games on film straight through read, go film some content and maybe train a person. It was honestly, it honestly sucked because I would literally just in my living room or in my room all day, just studying and for nothing, not making any money. But I knew that the knowledge that I was going to gain during that time about business training, all that stuff was going to pay off once the season ended, I could start training kids again. So that was really the decision maker. Cause if I did take the personal training job, I probably wouldn't have had a reason to force myself to go full-time training wise. Mm. I would have just been comfortable. You know what? I'm making enough money training. I'm making enough doing the personal training thing. So, you know what? I'll just stick with that. But I think burning the boats in that situation and giving myself no other option, but to figure it out and succeed with the, just the training thing was the biggest thing that I did. And I knew that that's the decision I had to make. I knew eh, it might not work out. And my parents too, in that situation, were like, Hey, like this isn't going to work. Like <laughs> you got to figure something out. But I knew, you know what, I'm just going to do this two, three months. Once the season ends, kids can start training. It's going to pick up and it's going to work out. Luckily it's slowly over time. It was, it was a grind. Like there was days, like you said, scratching your head going into to train. I'm like, kids would cancel on me. I'm like, what am I doing? Like this sucks. Yeah. And then, but again, just stuck it out. Consistency seven days a week for probably two, three years, saving every single penny that I could. Cause I knew I had a bigger vision. I wanted to get my own gym and things like that. And that wasn't going to come easy. So. Wow. What's the, in this self-immersion course that you put yourself, put yourself into of watching film. Tell us about that part of it, because what are you looking at when you're, what, what film are you watching? Are you just watching pure, just like strip uh, game film? Are you watching film of other coaches working people out or, or what are you taking from that? And what are you watching? Yeah. So it, it was a lot of different things. Um, I was looking at just pure skills. I was looking at sets. I was looking at decision-making reads. I was looking at all that different stuff. I would watch basically anything I can get my hands on. I was obviously studying other people's content. Um, I think Drew had a course, so I bought that, learned from his course. Mm. Um, just any anything that I could get my hands on that I knew would make me more knowledgeable because I knew the more knowledgeable that I am as a trainer, the more valuable I am. The more valuable I am, the more I'm going to be able to make. So I knew like this during that phase, especially the be- best thing that I could do is just build my knowledge and become more valuable as a trainer. So anything that I could get my hands on in terms of training, in terms of business, that's when I, re- I started really reading a lot of books. I think that year I read 50 books that year which for me was incredible because high school, I don't think I read one book. And then the (laughs) second I drop out, I'm reading 50 books a year. So I was just, (laughs) I was just trying to get as much knowledge as I possibly could in any area. 
Yeah, I love the the analogy of burning the boats, um, which you know some people may not have heard. Could you share, mm-hmm. you know, kind of how you came across that and why it's so so relevant to basically giving yourself no choice but to succeed in in, in yeah. what you decided to do? So I think the uh, the analogy initially comes from I think it was some war thing where they were getting off the ships to go and fight somebody, and they realized that if they burned the boats, that they couldn't get back on the boat, so they had to win the war. So it's kind of the same same mentality where it's like, if you have an out, you're gonna not really fight as hard because you know right. you can. You know what? Uh, it's not working. Let's just get back on the boat and leave. When there's no boats, you have to succeed. So that was one thing that I learned really on. I've done that a couple of different ways, um, but just like when you know you want to make a decision, sometimes burning the boat's the best way because you know internally that's the best decision. But if you have an out, you know you might take it. So if you burn the boats, you don't have an out. You really have no other option. So you you have to succeed. There's no other way around it. Powerful. How did you, what what about that part where you did say, you know what, I'm not going to try to also be on the side of performance or physical preparation for the game, even though you had, your dad was a physical therapist, you Mm -hmm. had prepared your own body for the game over the years and you had, and you do have, I think a a NASM, NASM um, certification in, in personal training or strength and conditioning. So mm-hmm. how did you though decide and say, no, I need to zero in on the skill stuff. And that's what I want to do. That, that had to be tricky because you have, we, we're all tempted to kind of do a little bit of everything, or at least I am. <laughs> 100%. I, I was really passionate about that just because I love working out lifting so much. And like you said, like I put a lot of time and energy into that, but I think the biggest thing for me was it, if you try to ke- uh, chase two rabbits, you're not going to catch either. So yep. the biggest thing for me was just like, if I try to do both, I'm not going to be great at either or it's going to limit my business. And don't get me wrong. There's definitely some successful people. My business partner from my other business, Coleman, does a really good job merging the two. But I think for me, I just knew, you know what, if I really want to excel in one area, I got to focus on one area. So yeah. it, it was a tough decision to make just because I love the strength and conditioning side so much. And I think the knowledge that I gain and still kind of learn in that area definitely helps me on the basketball side. But I think just for me, from a business perspective, and then from a focus perspective that I knew if I was trying to chase two rabbits, I wasn't going to catch either. Yeah. Okay. So the the golf thing is done. You're not really making a ton off of what you were doing that time. You're going to watch hours and hours of film and you're doing as much as you can, but it's not a ton. And then the personal training thing comes up, but you say, no, I'm, I'm all in on this. Mm-hmm. But when does the scale tip to, oh shit, this is real. And I'm putting, I'm, I'm investing everything I have money-wise, time-wise into something bigger where you buy your own gym. Mm-hmm. So I think it was, so after, I think it was 2019, the start of that was when I was like, okay, now it's just basketball, not working. Um, so I really just started to pick up. I had a consistent gym that I was able to train at. Mm-hmm. So I was able to slowly, it was, it was very gradual. Like there was no point where it went from like, 2000 a month to 10,000. It was just really slow. And another big thing that was my main focus was like, if you do more than what you're paid for now, you'll get paid for more than what you do. That was kind of a big thing that I just kind of hung my hat on. So I realized just do a really good job, everybody that you have right now, and it'll pay off over time. So it was very gradual. I think in the summer of 2019 started to really pick up. I got a lot of college kids was training maybe 30 hours a week. So I was like, Hey, this is starting to work out. Um, And then again, started to really pick up right before COVID March of 2020, I had a really good month in March because the season was ending and then obviously COVID hit. And right. then that's when things kind of shifted. Looking back, it all worked out. So during COVID, I was just driving to everyone's houses to try to train them. 
Um, so I would, there would be days I'd drive an hour one way, 30 minutes back, back to my house to train somebody outside in my uh, driveway and then drive another. So I was just driving all over the place, trying to make it work. And then the gym started to open back up. I went back to that same gym that I used to be at consistently and they got a new owner. So the way that I was running my business was like, he was like, nah, it's not going to work. Like we're going to charge you more. This is the way that we're doing things. And then they started charging arm and leg because there was no schools open. They knew that they could. So they were kind of price gouging in a way. So I was like, I need to get out of here. Like I need right. my own gym. So it kind of forced me to speed that process up. And then I realized, cause I was training 30, 40 hours a week. So I was paying about $3,000 a month at that facility at that time. So I was like, at that point I can get my own facility and I'm paying the same amount of money. So I was like, why don't I just do that? So looked at a couple of different places. I found the gym that I have now put a, had to put a lot of work into it. So it did, we, I think I put $50,000 up front and a lot of it was just painting it, making it look nice. Cause it was just really run down shitty, great location. But again, obviously had to do that. So really the catalyst was kind of COVID because of COVID that gym got a new owner and because they got a new owner, he upcharged. And I was like, you know what, at this point I might as well just get my own. Cause I'll pay the same amount of money for my own spot than somebody else's man. When you, once, once that was yours, the, the gym you're in now, and, and it is yours, the, there's still this period though where it's awkward until you start being able to churn that revenue that starts to pay for this now piece of real estate that is yours and to keep the lights on and all this other stuff, things start to add up. Was there a, what did I just do moment? Or you just kind of knew like, all right, just stay the course. So, so luckily right before I got this gym, I knew I was making enough money to be comfortable. And then the other thing I knew was, okay, so my lease was 3,100. My payment was 3,100 a month. And I realized, I knew I could rent the court out to other people. So obviously it was slow at first, but I realized, Hey, I can rent the court out to basically cover my payment. And then mm. everything that I'm making from training is profit. So I basically get a free gym essentially. So renting it out was slow just because obviously I had to get the word out that I had a gym and COVID was still going on. So that didn't help. Um, right. But yeah, luckily there was no real point where I was like, Hey, I, I don't know what I'm doing. This isn't going to work. It was still a jump. Cause what I was making at before I made the jump was like, it'll work, but I'm not going to have a lot of money left over, but I yeah. knew, okay, by getting a gym, I can film more content to push more stuff on social to get more kids. It immediately elevates my reputation. Oh, you have your own gym. That's pretty legit. So I knew, okay, based off that, I'm going to get more kids to train. And then based off being able to schedule whenever the hell I want, it's going to help me. So I just knew the opportunity cost was there, even though my numbers at that point and the, what the, it was going to cost might not have made the most perfect sense. I knew in a couple months, once people know I have my own gym, training picks up, I can rent it out it was going to make a lot of sense and be completely worth it. Yeah, really cool. Um, so it sounds like as well as burn the boats, you have some other kind of decision-making filters when you, you reach these forks in the road. What are some other ways that you kind of weigh this? Oh, well, if this, then that, and just kind of try to compare two or three big options against each other and then make those final decisions and, and jump all in. Yeah. I think, I think the biggest thing for me that I always look at is just the opportunity cost. So it's not like, I think a lot of people look at everything. It's just too black and white. Like it's okay. This either makes sense or it doesn't, but it's like how much sense does it make versus how much sense doesn't it make? So if mm. we're just talking in terms of pure numbers, it's like monthly payment is this, this is how much I'm making. That's kind of all they look at it, but they don't look at it. Okay. What kind of other opportunities am I going to get by having this gym? I was actually thinking about this the other day is like, you never know how 
important each decision you're making is going to be and how many other decisions that it's going to lead to. So for example, because I got this gym, the business partner now that I have for my other business mastery hoops, which you can talk about, he hit me up because he saw I had a gym. So that led to that relationship. And then that relationship led to my next business, which led to a conference that I ran and we ran in Miami, which led to us bringing eight of the best trainers in the country in, which allowed me to build those relate. So it's like literally just by me getting the gym, because I knew that opportunity cost was there. The reputation that I was able to get, the extra social media things that I was going to be able to put out, it was worth it. So that gym led to a business partner that I probably would not have met if I didn't get the gym. It is so funny how that adds up and and seemingly comes out of nowhere. You wouldn't even expect it. So talk a little bit about Mastery Hoops and, and what your, you and your business partner there are doing and, and who that is and, and where, where you guys are going with that. Mm-hmm. So my business partner for that is Coleman. His Instagram is by, at by any means basketball. So he's down in Miami. Uh, my ba- Mastery Hoops is a coach education platform and just a coach education business. So we run uh, a conference. We ran one last year in Miami. We're running another one in LA in two weeks. And then we also have a platform where we post drills. Uh, we post research articles. We post podcasts that are uh, beneficial for trainers. So it's really just like a, a blueprint for trainers. Like if you want to be a full-time trainer, if you want to increase your knowledge as a trainer, we give you guys all the resources. So it's kind of like what I wish I had when I was coming mm. up because I had to find all the resources myself. So and when just, you like, say, sorry, when, when you say trainer, are you, is your audience more the skills coaches and trainers or, or is it also sometimes the overlapping ones? Like you said, Coleman is. Yeah, it's, it's a, Kind of both. Like if you do strength conditioning and basketball, it's beneficial. Yeah. It's mainly for the skills trainers. Got it. But it's, all, it's also for performance trainers because we talk a lot about business too. Got but it. It's, we just really realized, hey, like we went and found all these resources by ourselves, where, what the best books are, uh, what the best podcasts to listen to, research articles, videos on YouTube. So it's like, right. why don't we just put that all in one place and then basically teach people everything that we've learned along the way, trying to become full-time trainers, getting our own gyms, because we both have our own gyms at 23 years old. And then why don't we just put that in one place and then just charge for it? And that's basically our business model because it, it just helps every, like saving so much time and knowledge. It took us five years to be a full-time trainer. If we take that knowledge or two, three, four years, whatever, if you, we give that knowledge to someone else, it could take them a year right. to execute rightly. So it's like, we're just saving people time and energy and just putting everything in one place for them. It sounds like that you, it's almost looping back to when you were in a business class in college and you're like, well, wait a second, (laughs) why am I learning from this person and how much can they really teach me? And so almost kind of the value proposition to me at least seems that it's uh, all the things that you didn't learn in school in a way, like the real world, the real world application. Yeah, closing the gap. That's really cool. What do you like best about working with Coleman, um, both as a person and just the skill set that he brings to the table? I I think we're, we complement each other. Well, Uh, in terms of our business models are kind of different. He's mainly makes a lot of his money online. I make a lot of my money in person. And Mm. so he's trying to kind of do what more or transition a little more to what I'm doing, kind of even it out. And I'm trying to get better online content wise, making more, more money online. So it's like, in terms of that, we're helping each other um also we're a little bit different personality wise which helps we're in different areas so it's like hey if i want to go to miami he can i can go down there he can come up here if he wants to come down here and obviously we're both very like-minded so it's tough at especially my age 23 most kids are in college partying not really caring about their future so it's rare to find somebody who's like that and is so driven to get better at their craft so 
right off the bat, we just clicked because we were just so much alike in terms of what we want to do with our life, our goals, our passions and things like that. So it was really good to to find somebody in the same field with the same type of mindset. Yeah, I love both of you guys as individual content and then the overlapping content that you put out through Mastery. Mm-hmm. It's it's just really well done. But where did you where did you get that recognition early on and and I sort of look back on like your YouTube channel and I look mm-hmm. back on your Instagram channel and you can see when it first came I think on YouTube maybe 2017 you started putting some stuff up on the channel yep. and then you can see this evolution like really rapid fast evolution as the the video quality improves just you behind the in front of the camera it gets really comfortable and and all mm-hmm. that stuff but where did you recognize or or what was it back at that point 2000 16, 17, where you're like, this ha- this is part of this is a, is a content piece that I have to put, put into the play if I'm going to do what I want to do. Yeah. So I just saw like every trainer and business figure that I was watching, they had a large following and they were really good at social media. And I just knew like there's, it's such an easy, especially in today's world, like attention is currency. So it's like, if you can get attention, you can make money. Like simple as that. So I just knew like, that's the easiest way to get myself out there, build a reputation around my name. So I was like, I just got to start putting content out. And in terms of the content side, like I didn't start and know what I was doing at all. Mm. Another big kind of decision-making framework thing that I kind of live by is just like try and then figure it out as you go. That's a big philosophy of mine. It's like when I, Love you, that. like you said, you can go watch my old Instagram, YouTube videos. They were terrible. Like yeah. I could not talk to the camera. <laughs> the quality was terrible. So I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to start. And then I was like, okay, maybe I'll get a better camera. Boom, did that. Maybe I'll find a way to, increase my quality of content. Uh, maybe my editing is going to be better. So just slowly over time, it was just a trial error, fix it, get a little better at this. And then I was able to hire the camera guy that I have now, Alex, who's just like really helpful. Hey, let's get some lights. Let's try this. Let's get better audio. So it's like by bringing people on, asking people questions, that was another big thing, especially with my business partner, because he's really good at content. Hey, what do you do? What helps? And so it's like yeah. being able to do that, but it was really just start figure it out, build as you go. And there's never been a time where it was like, same thing with like the financial piece. It was never like, oh, 5,000 followers to 25,000 followers in like a month. Right. Very gradual, slow build over time. And it was just, I just attributed to my consistency. That's, that's another big thing. I've just been trying to be as consistent as I possibly can. It's a long game. It's not going to happen overnight. For some people it does luckily, but for me, it's just been very gradual. Yeah, I love that. And I love the FIO. That's how I refer to it. Figure it out is I back in my Bakersfield jam days when I was the strength coach for Bakersfield out there in the NBA, then it was the D League, now the G League. But now they don't even have a team in Bakersfield. But in that minor league sports setting, myself and a couple of other staff members were always just saying, we're, we're top members of the FIO club. And in those days, it was just grind. It was figure it out. And there were so many things that we had never done before. We're on our plate. Like, hey, go do this. Hey, we need you to do this. Hey, this is, gotta figure that. I've never done that in my life. Just FIO, man. Yeah. And so that that is so key to being able to do it. I also love how you said, it's not going to be perfect right now. I'm just going to I'm going to learn as I go because I think Mm -hmm. so many people, they just fail to start because they think it has to be perfect on the very first rep. And though they're, they're just paralyzed because they're saying, well, it's not perfect. So how can I even start if it's not perfect? And, Mm -hmm. and that's really, uh, that's a really tough way to look at things because you, there's so many things you just don't start and that it would just take reps if you got better at same as you, I look back at 
some of my YouTube things. And I've had people be like, why don't you clean that out? It's, it's, it's totally different yeah. than the content you put out now. And I like it. I like have, being able to go back and look in the archives and say, see, look at though, you can follow that progression of what happened when I got reps and reps and reps. I had a conversation today with a gentleman who we train here at TD Athletes Edge. And he was asking, we, we, have, we provide video content for every exercise we do, whether you're in-person or online training with us. And people love it because it gives you that ability to kind of see and, and learn by seeing and by doing. And so he's like, man, but, and, and now I'm fairly comfortable in front of the camera. I can, in, in terms of taking videos, uh, but it, it, it took me years and years of reps and reps. And I was telling him, I remember when I was working for the Lakers and I was writing an article, I think maybe for stack or something like that. It was due the next day. We had a, we had a, maybe a, Thursday night game and I, I was due on a Friday. And yeah. so we play at the Staples Center and I hadn't finished the videos for it yet. I had written the content, but I get back from Staples Center. I go to El Segundo, the practice facility, and I'm like, all right, I got to knock out these four videos. It had to be me talking. And so I'm like thinking, okay, four videos. And I had done some video content at that time, but not so much now that I could just rip them out. And mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden I realized, okay, I get to the practice facility to start four videos. I'm like, I'm going to be here for like an hour, like 11 PM, 12 PM, no big deal. It's no, no biggie at that time in my life. And all of a sudden I look up and it's 3 AM and I'm still working on the fourth video. And I'm like, (laughs) what is going on? But you know, that's then now I could go do four videos in probably about four minutes and, and, and be done with it. But it's so many reps of outtakes, outtakes, that's, that's crap. That's crap. And the other part is you also have to get to the point where, Hey, look, that's going to, we're going to publish that. And then the next time I practice, I'm going to get a little better than that one. And that kind of thing. You you have to publish your, your imperfect work to get better at your next rep. 100%. I, I like that. Cause like, if you just only try to put out stuff that's perfect, it's just going to slow you down. Yeah. So it's like, a, especially at the start, like we kind of, I just started a podcast with one of my buddies and it's kind of the same thing. I was like, you know what? I don't even, I don't really know. We're going to, we started the podcast, but we didn't even know what the name of it was going to be. We we're just like, right. we're just going to do the first episode. And we just, we're just putting content out for it. And it's really just me and him having conversations, but we realized like, just, just keep putting it out. Like, especially at the beginning, no one's really watching what you're doing anyway. So it's like, right. if you're, if you have a hundred followers, just put stuff out. Cause was like a hundred followers going to judge you when you have a hundred thousand, it's not going to matter. Yeah. So it's like, especially if you're starting, you're going to be bad. So it's like, you might as well just be bad and embrace it and just keep practicing with it. And then over time, you're going to get better and better. Exactly. And I think, you know, one of my favorite books is Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott. And she's basically talking about how you get good at writing, which Phil, you could teach a, a, a course here on a future episode on for us. But Anne talks about the fact that the, the, her main principle is the way I got good and way I get a piece that is good even now being a really good writer is I just start with a shitty first draft. And then it gets better and it gets better and gets better. The premise of the book is one that I love is she has just wrote this whole book about this one instance when she was a child and she is at the end of a school year in elementary school and she's got to hand in this end of the year assignment that is like this huge presentation or a huge report, book report on birds, on on just different types of birds and all the things. And it has to be really extensive, all this other stuff. And there's a million birds and the books that she has to leaf through to get through it are just all across her living, her dining room table. And she's like about to cry. And she asks her dad, like, how am I going to do this by tomorrow? 
and I haven't even really started it. And he goes, you're going to do it bird by bird. And you know, that was the thing. Like she just sat there until the morning came and she wrote this report bird by bird. And, and that's exactly what you're getting at though, is the long game. You said it earlier. These are how these things happen. The overnight successes, they do happen, but there's almost always in those cases, this four five, six year period that led up to this overnight success. So it's like this overnight success that took years to get to. Absolutely. No, that's definitely a great analogy. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, one of the things that was interesting to me as I've listened to some other interviews you've done and looked through your materials on both websites was that during your kind of study period as you were putting things together bird by bird, uh, as TD said, you really looked into different learning styles and, and recognized, okay, well, you know, kids coming in who are all playing basketball, but they're not necessarily, you know, as TD mentioned, some might be visual learners, some might be experiential and all the other different learning styles. How important was that to, uh, to both realize and then to start putting into practice different ways for people to, to pick up skills in, you know, in their own style? Yeah, I, I think that was one thing that I realized early on, just because I would be training people and I would try to train people the same way. And then I'd realize, why does one kid pick it up and one kid not? And then I would try something like, oh, wow, that works for that kid. So then I, I just quickly realized like, hey, some kid, people learn differently. They learn at different speeds. Like you said, some are visual learners. Some like to walk through things. They like to, vi- so it's like, it all depends. So that's really when I started to try to learn about different learning styles, different communication tactics, and then just really catering how I'm teaching to that player. So it's like, I have some players that have like learning, not like full on learning disabilities, but they have trouble learning traditionally. So it's like, I have to be more patient with that kid. The kid has to walk through it more. They have to see it more. It's just going to take longer. And I think some coaches, especially when they have that kid that's taking longer to learn, they almost blame it on the kid. Like, Hey, like you're not paying attention or why don't you get this? And it's like, it's just not how it works. Some kids just learn differently because learning is obviously not a linear process. So Mm. that was definitely something that just took some time to learn and realize, and then finding different ways to communicate to present my information differently just to get to that same end goal. Yeah, it's really yeah, neat. Same, same thing, same thing within, and we talk about this with our team in terms of when you're working with one of our, our members training in, in the gym here from a, a physical and strength and conditioning training standpoint, there's people learn and learn exercise and how to execute skilled movements different and in different ways. And so you have to have this sort of lateral, vertical, diagonal toolbox to be able to reach in and say, well, that that normal one that I always go to and the cues that work really well for 95% of the people just didn't work with this. It didn't resonate with this person. So what are mm-hmm. the cues? Or maybe this person needs to see me demonstrate the exercise again versus me try to talk to them about it again and, and try to reword my instruction. It might just be that they need to see the thing happening versus hearing me speak about it. So I think that's really important. And that one of the things that develops your ability to go vertical, horizontal, up, down, sideways and diagonal within your your toolbox is just experience. You build different pieces into all those angles and different parts that exist in that wider, broader toolbox over time, but it's just experience a lot of the time. 100%. And I think a crucial part, I I definitely realize, I think early on, like like you said, experience is so important, but I think a lot of trainers, they know experience is important, 
But when they're building their business, like one thing that I think was really advantageous for me was I wasn't charging a lot at the beginning. Yeah. And I could, I, I was able to do that. So I wasn't charging a lot. I was getting more people in the door. I was training more. So I was getting more experience. So I think that was another crucial part that helped me accelerate my ability as a trainer. And I think that's just another key for trainers is like, understand when you should charge your worth and when not to. Yeah. In the beginning, if, if you need that experience to get really good, how are you going to get good if people don't want to train with you because they know it's right. not worth it at that price? So it's, it's really just balancing that kind of dilemma out and understanding, hey, if you want to get experience, sometimes you got to do it for cheap or free. Do it as quick as you can, get that process over with so you can start charging and making more money. Yeah, that's such a good point because I talk to young, either strength coaches, personal trainers, or even rehab professionals like physical therapists and and students who are kids who are in PT school and at about to graduate, they're trying to f- figure out like, how do I do anything in the private sector? How do I just start to make that first dollar? And before you even think about doing that, you should just be training people or giving people your service for free just so you can get the value from it. So you can get those reps because that's, and people often, they, other people will be in their ear saying like, Oh, that's ridiculous. All the time you're spending on that, they they should be, you're wasting, you know, you're, you have to be getting paid for that. That's, that's such a discredit to yourself. Like not really at that stage. And I, I always talk to entry level strength coaches, PTs, and anything under that umbrella. And it really does apply perfectly to skill coaches as well and trainers as uh, from a skill training standpoint as well for basketball or any sport. Same thing applies is you have to you have to get the value for yourself first is you getting the opportunity to work with people that you want to be known for working for. So if you want to say like, well, I, w- I want to work with athletes. Okay, well, who have you worked with and have you given yourself reps to work with them? And they're not going to just pay you for the right out of the gates because you just said, I work with athletes. You, you have to build your, your book of people and you have to get humans that you actually trained in the trenches. And a lot of the best ways to do that is go knock on doors. I mean, I remember vividly, I actually, your coach at Salem state, I went and knocked on Chris Harvey's door office door at Salem state. When I first got my own little brick and mortar scenario, I was working as a full-time physical therapist in Swampscott mass here. And then part uh, just full-time and then some, I was working overtime. And then I rented a batting cage in the building next door to me because I wanted to be able to do personal training. That was the first version of TD Athletes Edge. Mm-hmm. And we had a little garage door and we had a blue tarp that would protect people from getting smacked with a baseball. <laughs> I, I used to tell them that hopefully that'll help them with their agility. If they're paying attention, they, they dodge the baseball. So we, I would buy dumbbells on Craigslist, like one five pounder over here. And I'd go buy another one down there and go pick them up separately and have a five pound pair of dumbbells. But yeah. I went and knocked on Chris Harvey's door and I'm like, Hey, what can I do to work with your team for free? I, I know you don't have a big budget here at Salem State now University, but then it was Salem State College. And I also am trying to build my experience. So this is going to help me a ton. How can I help you? And then this helps me a ton. And suddenly I'm working with their basketball team. Suddenly I'm working with athletes and you just build yourself up that way. But you have to be willing to um, see that as a value add for you versus why this is time for me. Where's my money? Exactly. hundred percent. Go back, Tyler, for a, a bit, and and you earlier talked about these mistakes that you knew you made in preparation for the game, whether it be preparing your body or 
for your, your skill preparation as a high schooler, you were not shy to do the work, but you weren't maybe, as it sounded like you said, not working smarter uh, on things. Tell us what you mean by that and, and examples and then how you now help kids and, and young players work smarter and harder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd say the two biggest mistakes that I was making was number one, thinking that more was better, just working out more, just purely putting in more hours was not obviously better. And then the other mm. thing was trying to do it all myself. So it's, I was training by myself every day, but in reality, I needed other people to work out with, to challenge me and to get actual game like reps. So I think to go back to more is not always better, obviously being smart with your body um, and understanding that if you're just killing your body, it's not going to get anywhere. Another part of that was just not sleeping as much. Like, you know, the whole sleep, sleep when you die type thing, especially as a high school kid, I was like, you know, right. grind, 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 not realizing by me not sleeping, I'm not retaining the information I'm learning through the day. So it's like, I'm doing myself no good. So I think a lot of kids just shoot themselves in the foot with that is like thinking that just, just work harder is the answer. It's, it's really not. There's people that probably work half as hard that get better results just because they work smarter. So the way that they're structuring their practice, just doing a bunch of block shooting reps, shooting at the same spot, half speed, it's not going to do anything for you. You might as well just go back home because you're not doing anything. So just understanding like the small scientific details of training and how to get results not doing this block practice, kind of adding some variability, working out with other people so you can get some decision-making reps and things like that. Um, Just training smarter, making sure you're getting sleep, making sure you're eating right. I was eating decent. I knew a decent amount, but again, just eating right, how much of an impact that makes on your body and your recovery and your performance. Um, So I think those are just some very simple things that I think I try to teach to a lot of players. It's like, take some time off too. Like, that's another big thing. Like, I didn't take it, if I took a day off and I was in high school, I felt like I sucked as a basketball player. The next day I couldn't dribble. I couldn't shoot. I, was right. like, what am I, doing? I can't take a day off. And then after my senior year, I took two weeks off from basketball. And then I came back. I was like, wow, I'm a better player now. So I was like, I should have done this a long time ago. So like, I try to teach a lot of players that like, Hey, it's cool to take some time off. It's cool to get eight hours of sleep. It's cool to make sure you're training smart. Even if it's just an hour, go hard, be productive and get out. Like you don't need to be training all day. And I kind of took that over into my business at first too, is like, if I wasn't working, I felt like I wasn't productive. So it's like, there's yeah. a difference between productivity and, and work. Like just cause you're working 12 hours doesn't mean you're productive. So that kind of carried over initially. And then obviously I've learned to kind of drop the ego a little bit and realize, Hey, I, I can not work for an hour and I'll be okay. <laughs> like, right. So those right. are some big lessons. Can you talk about the, some of the things that people would be surprised about uh, in terms of like the, how, skill acquisition actually works in our body, either sort of the neuroscience of it or the pieces that you've seen learned the hard way, or, or you try to teach people, whether it's the actual details and the science of it, or just kind of like here are better ways to do it. But the, the skill acquisition piece, because that's what you do. You help people mm-hmm. acquire skill. Exactly. So I'd say two of the biggest misconceptions is just thinking it's just repetition. But mm. the big thing that I say is not all reps are created equal. So it's like, a big thing to learning is actually forgetting. So it's like, that's why we use blo- like variable mm. practices. So we can create some space for you to forget and relearn. That's how we strengthen skills. So if you're going to just do one skill all day long, you're not giving your time yourself time to forget and then relearn to strengthen that skill. So it's thinking that just doing the same thing over and over again is going to help you acquire a skill and just thinking it's just repetition. It's not just repetition because not all reps are created equal. There can be two trainers, one trainer who does the same thing over and over again. And then me, I can help a player get and acquire a skill probably 
four times as fast as just the get repetitions trainer. So mm. those are just some, those are the biggest misconceptions. And once you really understand that, even just that simple piece is just a game changer, I think, as trainers. Can you put that into an, a, a clear example of maybe how you've used recently with a player of the learn and forget and learn better type of approach? Yeah. So one example could be, say you're working on a certain footwork, getting it to a jump shot. Once the player can do it adequately, okay, now I'm going to go to something else. 20 minutes later, I might reintroduce it. Now they start to struggle with it. So they struggle through it. Now wow. I might wait two days, reintroduce it. They struggle through it. So every time that they're struggling, they're able to strengthen that skill. So just creating space and variability to allow them to struggle. That's how they're going to get better. So if they can already do it, repping it out more and more is not going to really do anything because they're just going to go on autopilot. They're not going to think they're just doing it off pure memory. It's just in their short-term memory. It's not going to help them actually acquire that skill and transfer it over to games. Yep. Yep. I think it was when we were speaking recently with one of our guests and they talked about uh, remembering what I, I believe was Kyle Corver saying he would just, he would just, if he was having a bad shooting skill session, he didn't want to groove the pattern and just continue to learn where he was not hitting shots. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's essentially him saying, I don't want to learn it this way, but he was also employing, I'm going to walk away. I'm going to come back to it. I'm going to walk away, forget this bad pattern that might be developing and I'm going to come back and refine it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I, I think I remember Drew talking about that too sometime when he was like, yeah. oh, like if he gets like a couple bad reps in a row, he just ends the workout. Right. It's interesting. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. Kind of the same approach that Charlie Francis would have, right? The great Canadian sprint coach. If he, well before VBT became a thing, velocity-based training, just that experienced coach's eye, if he saw that power decline for the day, he'd say we're done. And it wasn't the yeah. typical thing now. It'd be like, oh, we've got these three finishers I want you to do until yeah. you're, uh, you know, a sweaty mess on the floor kind of thing. Just call it at the right time to call it. Yeah. I think that's kind of getting into that a little bit is like, that's another thing a lot of coaches do is just try to like run their players into the ground from a training perspective. Yeah. So it's like, they think because the player is working hard again, it doesn't equal productivity. So they think, okay, let, I got to challenge the player. I got to push them outside their comfort zone. But if you're just pushing their cardiovascular system, you're not building skills. So, and obviously you can use that exhaustion as a constraint to, to help teach skills, but most of the time they're just like, Oh, they're really tired. The player feels like they got better, but oftentimes they didn't. So being tired and getting better are not obviously the two, two separate, two of the same things in strength and conditioning as well as in skill acquisition as well. Yeah. That makes me think of when I was first with the Lakers, we had Andrew Bynum and Drew, I mean, that is as big of a human as I've ever been around on a regular basis. And he would, he, his thing was, if I don't walk out feeling like I could barely walk out of the weight room and almost want to puke, then what's the point of me being here? And so I always used to try to get him to kind of meet me in the middle of some uh, of that. And I never really succeeded on that with Drew, but he had it in his head where it was like, it had to be painful, like physically painful at the end or else it wasn't a good workout. It wasn't effective. And I do think that was to his detriment in a couple of ways. Number one, if you think that it has to be that hard and that massive of a workout every time, you're going to start self-negotiating and saying, well, I don't have time or I don't want to go through that today because I'm already sore from last night's 
game minutes or whatever. So I'm going to skip today because I can't do that huge workout. Whereas if you just look at it as like little bites of the apple, something's better than nothing. And I should live to fight another day to fit in, in terms of walking out, then you're more likely to get that consistency piece that you talked about earlier. That is the key. It's the, it's the linchpin to the, to the whole thing of any thing that you're trying to get better at. And get results from. And then I also think that when you look at it that way, you do wear your body down. And we all know we watched Drew go from Andrew Bynum go from this powerhouse. I mean, I watched him against Tim Duncan in the Spurs just get 30 rebounds in a game. Like it was, it was just another day at the office. And if he wanted to, he could do that. But longevity wise, long game wise, as you said earlier, that's not going to, you can't sustain that type of a, Everest type workout every time. It's just not productive and it's not yeah, sustainable. Exactly. Sustainability is the big key there. It's just, yeah. You, so it, it totally makes sense if he had that mindset. Why now was it that the total reason why he kind of his career went? It was a went? factor. Right. Yeah, it was a factor. Exactly. It was a factor, but it, that's a definitely a big piece for a lot of players to learn too. Yeah. No that kind of gets us into another area that I know you've been fascinated with and learned a lot about over the years as you've been building the business, Tyler, which is mindset. Um, how do the mental skills um, slash mindset come into what, what you're trying to teach these young people that it's not, not just all about the physical, but sometimes the biggest battle is that little six inch long court between your ears. hundred percent. Yeah. Especially with a lot of my players, I try to be big on self-talk. I think a lot of players do a really bad job of that. It's just, they miss a shot. Oh, I can't shoot. And, one thing that I've learned in business and just life in general is everything that you think and you say is going to, going to affect your life in some way. So it's if you're continuing to tell yourself that you suck because you miss one shot, it's it's not how is that going to help you, right? So my biggest thing is like pay attention to what you guys are saying as players. I've helped a couple players completely transform their the way that they talk to themselves. And I actually had a kid text me the other day. He was like, "I just had the best self talk." I've ever had in my career because he wow. was in the gym missing shots and he went back to the conversations we've had. He completely, he just sat down for a minute, changed the way he was talking to himself, went back on the court and just said, he just not, started knocking down three after three. So it's like, for me, that's big. Like, cause that carries oh. over into life too. So it's like, exactly way, what I was mess, thinking. Yeah. So it's like, you mess up on the court and you learn how to talk to yourself and build your self-esteem, but the same thing's going to happen in business or in life. Something bad happens and you just start, talking bad to yourself. It's, it's just a snowball effect. So if you can flip that and start turning things into a positive or even just finding some way to just get yourself back to ground zero, then I think, like you said, that translates to everything, not just basketball. So powerful. Yeah, that's that's something where I think we just, that voice in ourselves is, it could be really harsh and it's, we take it for granted and that's just, that's all, oh, that's just, I'm just talking to me. So what's the big deal, but it does, yeah. it, it plants seeds and those seeds grow and, and they can either grow into something really powerful and, and really confident or, or not. And, and it is how we, we, what seeds we plant. It's, it's funny. Cause I think if you ask most players the way that they talk to themselves, would you allow somebody else to talk to you like that? They'd be like, yeah. hell no. It's like, why are you talking to yourself that way? If someone was telling you you're stupid, you can't shoot. You'd be like, dude, stop. But it's like you do it to yourself and you allow it. <laughs> yeah, crazy. that's a good point. That's that's such a good point. Tyler, talk a little bit about the way you've watched the game evolve when you now break down film. You watch NBA guys in game situations and you've been doing that now for really, really aggressively for four or five, maybe longer, maybe more than that, four or five years. Mm -hmm. And just 
what is happening with the game in front of our eyes? Do you like it? Do you, where's it going and, and kind of the status of, of the evolution of the game? I think it's been interesting. I think obviously the three point is a complete game changer. I think I'm not really a big fan of the NBA. I don't like how there's no, um, or how there's defensive three seconds. Mm. Just especially with the athletes that we have nowadays, people are becoming more and more athletic. If there's an open paint, it makes it really easy to go by someone. There's so much space. People are so quick and you can't use any contact because if you do use a little arm bar, you're going to get called for a reach. So I, I think I'm not a big fan of the NBA just because of lack of physicality, the de- no defensive three sec- or defensive three seconds. So there's no one in the paint. Yeah, um, it, it's tough because I have this argument with people where it's like, oh, like the Kobe Jordan uh, LeBron debates. And it's like, they try to go off stats. It's like, it's tough to go off stats because the rules are different now. The game is different. There's a faster pace. So it's like, you have to take all that into account. I mean, I think it's interesting. I think in today's game, you need to be able to shoot. If you can't shoot, you're going to have a really tough time. Um, so, and, and the tough thing with that is there's still a lot of coaches that coach youth basketball that, Oh, this kid's six foot one as a fifth grader. Let's make him a big guy. And then it's like, okay, now he's still six foot one as a senior in high school and he can't shoot because he was never allowed to step outside the three. Right. So it, it's tough. I'm not a huge fan of the NBA. I like watching some overseas ball. I like watching college ball. Um, but obviously you have to kind of adjust the way that you're teaching the game to fit the rules of the game and the way that the game is played today. So, yeah, no question. Uh, get a little bit dialed in and, and drill down into one of the things I've heard you talk about is what is balance and shooting on balance? What do you mm-hmm. mean by that? And, and describe that. So, so I think a lot of people think of, Again, I think it's people thinking too much in terms of black and white, like, oh, balance has to be straight up and down, landing on balance, landing in the same spot. But it's like balance is very situational. So it's like if you're moving to the right away from the basket, you being balanced is not going to be going straight up and down. Mm. You being balanced, I think, is just really being in control of your body and being comfortable in that position. So it's like you can learn to be on balance in essentially unbalanced situations. So if you're driving to the right, especially in basketball, and the way that you position your feet, to be on balance, you're going to have to turn. So it's like people don't think of that in terms of being on balance. It's like if you were standing on one foot to be on balance, sometimes you got to like move your body. So it's like, if you were like this, people are like, Oh, you're not on balance because you're moving, but that's helping you stay on balance. So it's kind of the same way in terms of shooting. So again, I think it's just people think too much in terms of black and white. Oh, if you're not straight up and down, if you're not very controlled, you're not on balance, but it's very contextual. Yeah. And especially at the speed of, today's game and what it takes to get a shot off and what defensive players are allowed to do and have more of this ability and there's more space, but there's also faster players and different offenses and different defensive schemes. So you you have to have sort of that ability to get your shot off in any window, I think. Right. Yeah. And do you look at anybody in either college or NBA right now who is like, there's an example of a guy who can do that at the the highest level. Yeah. I think the best one's obviously Steph. It's it's very obvious, but I think people don't really realize. I think people just credit to like, Oh, he's just talented. Right. He's adaptable. Like if you look at the way he trains, a lot of what he does isn't just like normal jump shots. You see him working on floaters. He's throwing it up to the damn sky. Like he's working on all these different things. So I think, the way that he trained has made him so adaptable to do those types of things. Like you see right. someone go to the rim and they're distorting their body and they're facing away from the rim and they still finish it. They're like, Oh, that's just a lucky roll. But it's like a lot of times those players have worked on weird things at the park, going up, trying different weird moves and learned how to be adaptable. So it's really skill that allowed them to do that. It's adaptability. Yeah. 
what people just kind of look at as like, oh, Steph's just talented. He's just one of a kind. But the way that he's trained has allowed him to do things like that, to get his shot off in any situation, to be twisting one way and make it to be fading and do all these different things and still be able to get the same result. So, yeah. And not long ago, that's sort of to, to a lot of traditional skill coaches or people that have been around the game for a very long time, that was unorthodox or unnecessary or just fooling around in terms of practicing those types of positions and shooting from different angles, different balance points and things like that. But would you say that's something that you actually target on purpose for some players where that's going to be their style of game? Yeah, I think I've made a couple posts about it, like, and kind of getting back to the trainers, just thinking it's like repetition, doing the same perfect rep. But again, because the game is so fast paced, there's so many different things that happen. You need to be able to do those unorthodox things, right? Shoot with a little bit awkward footwork to mm. finish in different situations because the game is not perfect. If, if all you do is practice that one, one perfect technique, oftentimes you're not going to get that one perfect technique in a game. So you have to have kind of like a variety of that skill. Like if the skill is shooting on balance, you need to be able to shoot in a lot of different unbalanced scenarios to be successful. So if you're only practicing that one perfect technique that you hope to get in a game, you're just not going to be prepared for the game. Yeah. And not only perfect, but also you, or at least I grew up with coaches telling me there's a right way to do a layup and there's a wrong way. And it's like, Hey, what do you need to get the ball in the hole at the end of the exactly. day when the game is live? That's the question. hundred percent. It's what gets the job done. It's not if, because people do unorthodox stuff all the time in a game and it works. So it's like, is it right or wrong? It's neither because it works. So I guess you could say it's right. Yeah. So just because it doesn't look textbook doesn't mean it's wrong. Going back to the balance thing, are there things from a, a physical standpoint, because you do have a background in, in preparing the body physically and an understanding of that and certifications there. You also work with Coleman, who does a lot of that, and, and you have a, a very good understanding of that in, in terms of what you put together for your own body in your mm-hmm. playing days. But are there things where you talked about some of the skill session or the skill workouts and and drills that you use to work on that and get players different looks in off balance positions, but, and reps, I should say, but what about from the physical side, if you're not with a ball in your hand necessarily, are there things that translate to balance when you talk about balance or being off balanced and still being able to get your shot off? Yeah, I don't personally do anything because I try to, as much as I can combine it onto the encore process. But I think there's definitely some things that you can do. I think a lot of it obviously comes down to core strength and, yeah, being on balance in different situations, but it's tough to make because obviously you can build the general foundation of balance and strength in certain ways to help them on the court when they start to practice under these certain circumstances. So I'd say that's the biggest thing is just I'm obviously not a strength conditioning expert. I don't really I don't do the off court stuff, but I think yeah. as a strength conditioning coach is understanding the demands of the game so that way you can properly train the body so that way they can be prepared in situations like that, because I think if you're like a traditional strength conditioning coach and you don't understand the game and you don't understand all that, like the kind of science you just do like the normal core workouts or whatever. Right. You don't understand the real demands that that body is going through. So you're, again, you're just not properly preparing the body for what it's actually going to see in a game versus theoretically what you think it's going to see. Yeah, totally. And I, I'm so glad you brought that up in that way because I couldn't agree with you more in terms of it does sort of start with that cylinder, the core of things. And the core is a much broader part of our body and and many more anatomy pieces and muscle areas that are a part of the core, in my opinion, than just your six pack abs. And so the, the point you made though is so good. And the way that I look at it is you have 
<clears throat> you have this core that if that cylinder can be doing its job while your arms and legs are doing sport and, and your arms are way over the left side or the right side of your body, depending on how you shoot it and not in your normal shooting pocket. And then your legs are doing something funky because you had to get around a screen and, and one of your mm-hmm. legs is getting pulled the other way, but your core is a, is a, is a cylinder. It's, it's locked in and it's doing its job so that the arms and legs can be doing these crazy things that really is what any sport is about. And certainly the, the speed and the pace of basketball and the fact that contact can happen, there's not protective equipment to take some of the load of the contact that happens and things like that. Your body can be pushed off of its position real easily, but if you still, it's very hard to get that core off base if you trained it that way. So I always look at things from the standpoint of if you took like a chop or a lift exercise, which is just, when I say that, I just am talking about an anti-rotation exercise where you picture a cable or a band and you're, you're chopping or lifting that with your arms out extended from even a half kneeling or a standing or a split stance position. And you're waving that across your body to keep your core stable, like a statue while your arms or legs do work, your legs stabilize you in the stance that you're in, your arms do this diagonal pattern, and you can actually be training that core to be a cylinder when you have these awkward actions and diagonal positions of the arms and legs. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. It does sort of start with that core of the cylinder. Mm-hmm. 100%. That's why it's, it's so important for and basketball players are famous for not really taking care of their body and lifting as much. So right. And it, you don't need to do the typical bodybuilding workouts. Like it doesn't need to look like that. And it shouldn't, if you're trying to become the most or the best basketball you can be, but that's why it's so important for you to be in the weight room is to prepare your body for these types of things. Cause if you're not, you're just eliminating, limiting yourself to what you're capable of doing on the court. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Why do you think the, the culture of the sport doesn't always until later on when a light bulb has to get turned on or, or sometimes people learn the hard way, they better get their, themselves into the weight room. Why do you think that is in terms of the, the way that the, the game is in, in many cases for many players? I think just because a lot of people that play are naturally gifted. So mm. they think, oh, because I have athleticism now or natural athleticism, that'll be fine. And they just think, oh, I'm just lifting to get bigger to jump higher. But it's way deeper than that. So they don't understand, okay, if I want to play this game for a while, I got to keep my body healthy. So they don't understand that, the injury reduction part. And the injury reduction part is, I'm, I'm fine now, so why should I? I'll worry about getting hurt when I get hurt. Right. So you got to think ahead. So I think it's just like not really understanding the full grasp of why you should be strength, like strength yeah. training and just how deep it really is. And they just think, oh. I don't need to get bigger. I don't need to jump higher. I'm fine. I get away with it. So they're just like, ah, screw it. Worry about it later. Great point. Yeah, really solid. Um, among the the high school age kids that you work with, what what does a, an ideal week look like if you get enough access to them to do, as you say, productive work, not just quantity work? Yeah. So if I was to take, say, I was to have an athlete five days a week. I would ideally try to do one, maybe two. It all depends on the kid because it's tough to tough to be very general, but I'll just be kind of general on this, but one to two individuals a week. And then I do three group workouts where everything's a lot of decision-making, a lot of live reads, a lot of playing with defense, and then trying to build those skills within that. So a lot of what I do in my training is the games-based approach. So it's like, it doesn't look like we're working on certain skills, but the constraints and the environments that I'm putting them, putting them in are forcing them to start to build certain skills as well as building that decision-making ability on top of that at the same time. 
Yeah, that's really admirable that you're kind of looking at it. I, I love the way you talk about reads because, you know, people more familiar with football will probably think, oh, well, that's just, you know, for a quarterback or this or that mm-hmm. position in football. But, yeah, talk a, a little bit about the importance of basketball, about not just being able to apply the skill, but to back up one step along the decision-making tree and decide what the defense is giving me and then then decide which, which pattern and, and to be able to do that quickly without having to break it down into, you know, all these different chunks. Yeah, it's interesting because that's going to be that's actually my topic at this next conference is kind of breaking down decision making, which I'm excited to talk about. But it's funny because if you ask a lot of basketball coaches, it's like, okay, what's the most important skills? They'll be like, oh, shooting, decision making. And it's like, okay, how much do you train decision making? What percentage of your practices are training decision making? Maybe 5% of the typical coach is decision making. It's, oh, if you're in this situation, do this or let's watch some film. But it's like everything that they're doing is pre-planned movements, is reps on air but they tell people that decision-making is important, but yet 5% of your practice is decision-making. So that's why I'm huge on the games-based approach. If decision-making is that important, I try to make that percentage as high as I possibly can. Um, and it, it's a, it's a tough process to learn. I think a lot of coaches have a, uh, a tough view of it because they think, okay, if I just tell the player, this is what they should be doing, that they're, when they step in a game, they're going to be able to figure it out. But it's not a decision-making is not a conscious pro- process. They don't have time to think, okay, I'm in this situation. I got to do this. They don't have time for that. So everything has to just be subconscious and instinctual. And you can't build that unless you put them in enough situations to make decisions in practice. Mm. So that's just why I'm so big on making the, to decide if you have a quality workout, it's not about how many reps you get. It's about how many decisions you make in my eyes. I love that. Well, Tyler, I want to respect your time. I know you got lots to do and, and get the most out of every day. So want to let you do that, but we do have one famous last question. So this is the basketball strong podcast. The question is, what does it mean to you to be basketball strong? I would say to be adaptable and to fit any, any situation that would, that would be my, that'd be my answer. So if you're quote unquote basketball strong, you can put yourself in any situation and figure it out. Kind of like we talked about your body can be strong in that situation. Your mind can be strong and your mm. skills can be strong and adaptable. So I, I think it's, it's a very holistic approach between body, mind and skills. Well, the other thing too, that I love about that is that applies on the court and off the court. hundred percent. Yeah. So good. Well, tell people where they can follow, where they can tap into what you're doing and, and reap the benefits of, of getting to a chance to work with you and learn from you. Yeah, so you can find me on Instagram at TJL Training, uh, YouTube, it's just my name, Tyler Claire, and then TJLTraining.com and then MasteryHoops.com. Love it. The, the, awesome. no, no, I promise you won't be disappointed by, by checking it out. So thanks so much, Tyler. This has been absolutely incredible. Awesome. Thank you. Was, I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it, Tyler. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, and we hope you did, please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. And so you never miss a weekly episode, be sure to subscribe and follow. You can find previous episodes on our show website. That's www.basketballstrongpodcast.com. For more basketball performance resources and nagging injury solutions, follow me on Instagram, at TD Athletes Edge and follow Phil at Phil White Books. Until next week's episode, stay basketball strong. <laughs>